This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with Robin Mob, Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good morning. Or good afternoon, or good evening. Now, now, this is not just a Robin Mob uh, today, um, For uh, we have a very special expert guest uh, this week. Uh, Mob and I went to a convention at the Williamstown RSL, I believe, the, the weekend before last, and a number of people gave talks about the, the Shenandoah, and they were fascinating, and we've, we've asked uh, the person who gave the, the, the first talk, Byard Shepherd, to come along, and Byard is our guest. Um, thank you very much for coming, Byard. Thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me. It looks like it's going to be a bit of fun. Yeah. Oh, I hope so. And, Byard, your presentation at the conference was called Seeking... Before the legend. Yes. Um, the general idea was that we all know about the Shenandoah, we know about her voyage, but very few people really understand what she was as far as the actual vessel is concerned mm-hmm. um, and how she started her life. And that's what I wanted to cover. So before the legend, before she became the Shenandoah, which is the legend, she was the seeking. And this was such a fascinating uh, talk, and it covered in great detail. We, we sort of maybe glossed over this in our <laughs> first episode yeah. or two, and that's why we thought we'd bring along the expert. Thank you. Who'd be able to tell us uh, a bit more about that, because it is fascinating. It was a it was an unusual ship, wasn't it? It was... Uh... Yes. Um, basically, she was designed and built as a composite vessel. So prior to that... To the time of the Civil War, most of the ships were wooden. Then they went through a period of building them in out of all iron. Um, but each had its own intrinsic problems. Mm-hmm. So wooden ships have a problem, particularly with Torito worms, mm-hmm. which eat into the into the hull and eventually will sink a ship. Certainly require a huge amount of maintenance. So they came up with the idea: well, we'll copper bottom so that the worm can't get into the into the woodworking. So they did that. That's fine. Then people came along with iron vessels because iron was taking over, started building all iron vessels, which were fine, not susceptible to the worm. The problem was they got barnacles all over them, which slowed them down. Oh. <laughs> so then people said, well, maybe we can do both. Maybe if we combine the strength of, of iron with timber and copper bottoming, we can come up with something that will work and we add all our problems in one hit. And that's basically what they did. So that was what a composite vessel was. Alexander Stephen and Sons, the people who actually built the Sea King, this was their first or well, second ever attempt to build one. They did build one with the John Leggett before, which was very successful. And they, they had this patented this idea. So you built an iron frame. Mm-hmm. And on that iron frame, you then planked it below the waterline with elm, above the waterline with teak, and then you copper bottomed it. Mm-hmm. And that solves all your problems. So you have a vessel that's extremely strong because the iron framing is a lot stronger. It's a lot lighter than an all-wooden vessel because there's an awful reduction in the amount of material in the, the vessel, right. mm-hmm. which for a merchant ship, which is that's what the Sea King was. It was a merchant vessel. It was not a warship, right? It was built as a merchant vessel. By reducing that amount of material inside the ship, you increased your hold capacity, so therefore you can carry a much larger cargo. Mm-hmm. 
So they built her like that. That's what she was designed as. But she was she was beautifully built. And she was very well, very well designed. And so, where was where was the Sea King actually constructed? She was actually constructed on the Tyne in Glasgow, in Scotland. Uh, what a surprise! I, I didn't <laughs> see that one coming. <laughs> Shipbuilding on the Tyne, I never. Uh... But I believe, in fact, that Alexander Stevenson and Sons were actually around till till comparatively recently. I, I think yes. they, 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 they managed to get to like, like to 1970. Or, or yes, they did, yes. Yep, yep. Now, they were one of, the, one of the more successful ones, and they've been going on since prior to 1800. They started about 1750-something, oh. but not where they ended up in, in Kevin Hall in Glasgow. They started in uh, further north, then moved two or three times until this was the final, sort of this was their final shipping area. Mm-hmm. So the Sea King was originally constructed to be a commercial vessel. Yes. And what trade was it specifically built for? It was specifically built for the China tea trade. So because uh, that was where the big money was. And this was the idea, as I understand it, that you uh, got the tea back to England as quickly yes, as possible. Exactly. I mean, prior to this composite vessel style, and the fact that she also had an auxiliary steam screw built into her they were running clipper ships from mm-hmm. China. The faster you could get that first tea of the season back to London, the more money you got. Right. Because they put it up for auction. So the first tea that was auctioned is the big money. And it was a huge race. I mean, it was published in all the papers. Mm-hmm. You know, so the newspapers would say, you know, we have X number of ships sailing out of China and they'll be leaving on such and such a date. And there's literally a competition as to when they will arrive. And on some of the great races, literally, they arrive within 10 minutes of each other in London. That's an having, all, wow. having left that, China. What, was that that might have been the the Thermopylae and the Cutty Sark? Would, would that have been Thermopylae uh, and Ariel? Oh, that okay. was, that's the big famous one. I, yes. I thought, I thought I'd the Cutty Sark. Cutty Sark certainly did race in them as well. Several. I mean, the, you were talking several ships at a time. Now, now uh, through, uh, Rob is Rob is holding up the magic of radio. radio. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yes. I'm holding up the hull of my model of the Cutty Sark to the microphone. So yeah. yes, this is this is a. Uh, a, a wonderful moment in podcasting, um, and of course uh, the Cutty Sark um, is still still in dry dock today, which is why you can still buy one yes, model yes. today. But it, actually, um, the, the main difference, of course, between the Cutty Sark and the Shenandoah was that the the Cutty Sark was, was purely a, a sailing ship, but yes. they were a very similar size. Um, yep. The Cutty Sark was about seventy meters, as was the Shenandoah. Um, to my layman's eye, the hull shape certainly very um, similar. Looks very similar, but it's interesting that only a few years after the Shenandoah, the, the latest greatest thing was um, all sail. So, 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 do you, know, if, do you have any ideas about what happened to the whole idea of having? The, the, the steam engine and, and the sails, because the, the Cutty Sark certainly didn't have an engine. No, she didn't have an engine. Most of those clippers didn't. Um, but they realised that steam was the advantage for when you hit the doldrums. Because when yeah. you're sailing back, you're going to hit periods where you have very light winds, yeah. and that's going to slow your ship down. Now, you want to get to London as fast as possible. So someone brightly said, well, why don't we put an auxiliary screw in you have the problem with that is that if you then build a steam engine and put a propeller on it, the propeller creates drag when you're under sail. Mm-hmm. Yep. So to overcome that problem with the Seeking and several other vessels of that time, what they came up with was a chain system which allowed you to actually hoist the propeller up into a housing below the poop deck. And uh, I believe Sam Craighead in uh, one of the talks he gave made a very interesting observation about 
something they didn't quite figure out. He did indeed. And look, I totally agree with Sam. I think he he, he hit the nail on the head with it because if you were actually standing on the poop deck of the Shenandoah Sea King, you would see this little hut at the back, which was sitting over the top of the gearing system. And at the back of that hut, there was a crank handle. So to raise the propeller, two blokes would actually crank it up by hand, which is ridiculous. As Sam so rightly pointed out, they had steam power. Why didn't they just put an auxiliary steam engine to bring it up and down? It wouldn't be that hard, but they never did. So this was just like that was this was just one of those moments like say for example in basketball where apparently for the first 20 or so years of basketball no one thought of the idea of putting a hole in the bottom of the the, the little net on yeah. the ring. Yeah. So a chap had to come with a ladder and climb up to get the ball out. Hmm. And a and also, the, 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 the can opener was only invented about 30 years after the invention of the can. Yes. So, so for the first 30 years, people were like stabbing their cans with bayonets going, why is this? Bayonets or knives or whatever, yes, exactly, that's right. Yeah, now you do, I suppose, the necessity is a mother invention. Eventually people go, well, hang on a second, there must be an easier way of doing this. But yeah, it, it was a very strange thing to do. You wonder why they didn't think about it. But they haven't, it was an afterthought. Because they had the same issue with the capstan too, didn't they? Because... Mm. Uh, Memorably, when they first set off after being provisioned by the laurel, mm. the officers had to join the men at the capstan to pull up the anchor because yeah. uh, there wasn't enough men to do so. Oh, she was terribly short, short-staffed as far as once she became the Shenandoah, yes. Yeah, so you'd think if they had steam power, they could have had a steam-powered capstan too, perhaps. You would think so, but it was interesting when we went down to the Pollywood side the last day that the American friends were with us. We uh, we had a wander around on there, and they have a, they have actually got two capstans. they got one at the front, and they got one in the middle. And we were sort of saying to the guy, why have you got one in the middle? And he said, because that's how they hauled everything up. They were still doing manpower to pull stuff out of the hole using the capstan. Oh, well, I mean, and this is, we're talking 1900. We're talking shit that was built in the 1880s, and they were still doing using manpower to do it. So you wonder why... If Maybe you've got it's the ability, an issue of reliability. It could be. I don't know. I don't know. I wish I did know. Uh, also, what the answer if, if, if manpower is cheap, then then, then use manpower. Uh, well, and, true. Um, yeah. There did seem to be a bit of an attitude among the ship owners of the day that if a sailor wasn't working, then you know they weren't getting their money's worth. Oh, that's, so, that's uh, for sure. I mean, you know, they had very fast rotational watches all the time, and blokes were expected to be working four hours on, four hours off, four hours on. So. We've we've had the Sea King constructed in Glasgow, yep, and it becomes a commercial vessel. Yes, and what was its history then before it went to uh, she sail- the story we're talking about? Okay, so she sails she sails out of Glasgow. She comes down to London. Um, there's an interesting little journal written by the son of the captain who kept some notes, um, Jean Pennell and his son Jean Philippe, and he mentions. Sailing with his father, his mother, and his brother, and uh, a couple of other people, and they sailed down in very rough weather. They had to put into a lock to, because of the storm. Uh, they had some interesting problems in that they were carrying a ballast of pig iron and gunpowder. <laughs> yeah, well, not not a good necessarily a good move, and the gunpowder shifted. Several of the barrels broke open and sort of scattered themselves in among the pig iron. Now, if you can imagine, in a fairly stormy sea, all you need is a couple of pieces of iron going together and creating a spark, and kapow! Well, at least they were carrying gunpowder and a two thousand boxes of matches. No, well, that's, that's that's true. That would be that would be very dangerous. But anyway, they apparently they pump they use the pumps to pump water onto it to keep the gunpowder wet, and uh, the weather picked up and they sailed back down to London. So they got to London uh, and then someone came on board, uh, one of the uh, 
officials from the government came on board and said to Captain Pinnell, well, this, the British government has actually um, chartered your vessel, sir, so you're not going to China, you're going to New Zealand. Oh. We need to take troops to the Maori Wars. And so they loaded 350 British troops mm-hmm. and took them to Auckland and sailed from London to Auckland in 77 days. Which is a pretty fair that's clip, That's a isn't it? pretty good clip. That's not bad. That's a fair distance to travel in that time. Yeah. Now, I, I also believe that, that something happened to, to either either the, the Shenandoah had a big deck or second deck hmm. um, or, or they constructed one because obviously a troop ship, um, where, 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 where would you put 350 people? Do you, do you know where, where that's Well, Shenandoah certainly had two decks. Yeah. Right, so you had a main top deck. In fact, technically she had three decks because you had a, a main top deck, you had a second deck below which was for storage of cargo as well as a hold below, which was the major cargo yep. area. And then you had two minor decks. You had a poop deck at the back, which was over the officer's quarters, yep. and you had a forecastle deck at the front, which was over the normal seaman's quarters. Yep. And then just just before the foremast, there was also another housing area which hold, held the galley and held the crew quarters for the warrant officers. Okay. Yep. So, yes, so you could certainly put 350 people on board it without any trouble. I mean, the Certainly, at times with what the Shenandoah captured, she was overcrowded. Yes, there might have been a queue for one of the four flush toilets. I reckon there would be a serious <laughs> queue at times. Yes, <laughs> particularly since they probably gave up one to the ladies that they captured. Yes, yeah. yeah. some some would have would have had to have done that. Um, now I would actually like to go back because um, a couple of um, questions occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Um, now. At the top, we kind of regard this composite construction now as as a little bit old-fashioned and something that, that didn't really take off. Um, well, I say that, but you know, for all I know, there might be millions of composite But at the time, it was, in fact, the latest, greatest thing. Yes. And, and it made it, in many ways, um, in modern terms, um, I don't know, quite almost environmentally friendly because because it was it was partly made of wood and um, and partly made of, yeah. of of steel so it's a very interesting idea but the other thing that i find fascinating is that that whole idea of having an engine that you could remove from the water when not in use ne- never took on with big ships because i think it was just too hard but in fact you, you go down to any marina in the world and you'll see a um a a, a yacht or a um catamaran with, with, with an outboard motor. Yes. So, so in fact, it, it became massively important hmm. in, in, in small ship design. Well, so it's, very, it's very useful because if you're manoeuvring in a harbour, it is very hard to set sails to move in a harbour. Yeah. If you've got an auxiliary screw to move your ship around within a harbour, and, of course, you can reverse it as well, so yeah. you can actually make a ship go backwards, which you can't do under sail. It's almost impossible <laughs> to do it under sail. Right? You have to tack back and forward to try and go anywhere. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's an adjunct to allow you to manoeuvre the ship better, to go back into what we were saying about with the clipper ships and the doldrums, if you're stuck in a calm area, it makes a difference. The other thing which was occurring at this time and actually hadn't quite occurred but was about to was the opening of the Suez Canal. Now, once you open the Suez Canal... You yes. can't run a, It's almost impossible to run a sailing ship. You can't really tack down. No, you canal, can't. You? So you need something. They didn't have an ability to, at those days, like they do now with the big mules, to pull those things, a big bad mm-hmm. mule. So the only way you could do it was to have some way of actually pushing the ship along the Suez Canal. So an auxiliary screw ship can go through the canal, whereas a clipper ship, under pure sail, still cannot. It still has to go around the Cape of Good Hope. So was the, was the um, Cutty Stark still 
beating ships through, you know, back from China with, with tea yep. when the Suez Canal was open? Yep, was yep. Right? Yeah, still, still able to do it, yes. Under, under good conditions, she could still outrun most of them, yeah. Well, that's, that's Having to go around the, uh, yep, the yep, Cape. Yeah, because those things... Because the other <laughs> thing, of course, is you got then you went, you started getting away from sailing ships. You started to get the start of the tramp steamers yep. that we know now, which mm-hmm. are common right through. And they, of course, go straight through the Suez, through the Mediterranean. But they had limitations as well. Yeah. They were a lot slower. Those yeah. clipper ships were a lot faster. They were built for speed. Those ships really got up a hell of a speed. I mean, the Shaking was recorded doing 11 knots in her sea trials, which is pretty quick. Cody Sykes, the Mopoli, Ariel, some of those, they wouldn't have known to get up to even 14, 15, 16 knots. Yep. That's, yep. that's, very, well, they that's have, moving. They have incredible sets of sail on Oh, them, huge, they? yeah, that's right. They have more sails on them than, than the Sea King had. Uh-huh. I, you, be- you, yeah, I, yeah. I believe the Cutty Sark um, had 3,200 metres of sail. Would not surprise um, me. Yeah, yeah. 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 Good, yeah. That's how, it's interesting because... Would the Cutty Sark, for instance, have had the, the Cunningham's painted uh, topsails? Because that, that's yes. another thing that I find very interesting. Okay, so... so, yes, so Most but, of them did by that stage. Well, you'd almost have to, because how could, how could you as a captain send your, send your crew five lots of sails up? No, well, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. No. No, that's the thing. And also, the other thing is you have to take into account by having that Cunningham painted system, you could reduce the number of sailors you have to have on board. Yes. That reduces your costs considerably. No, no, and owners are much very interested in how much money we can save. The more we save, the more we make for ourselves. <laughs> now, I believe we have uh, we have talked about um, Cunningham's painted top sails uh, before in our podcast, but we might actually go go into a bit more detail because certainly in your in your presentation you've actually got a picture which is which is wonderful. But Thank you. as far as I can work out. Basically, they, they were they were roller blind for sales. Really. That's a, that's a very good description, and, and several people actually have made comment about that at the time that was, the, was shown at the Royal Exhibition and stuff like that. But yes, it was basically like a roller blind. So he developed a system whereby instead of sending aloft twenty odd men to stand along a rope along a spar lean over it and try and pull up a sail, and as you pull it up, tie it off, pull up another bit, tie that off, keep going. While the ship is While the ship's and pitching, rolling, rolling all and, over the place. Yeah, and yeah. if you see some of the photographs of some of these guys up there, it is not for the faint-hearted. Um, yeah, so basically what he ended up doing was he invented a pulley system which allowed you to grab hold of the sail and actually use that pulley system from the deck of the ship to actually roll that sail up and bring it up to the spar. Mm-hmm. And you could literally bring up a sail in under 30 seconds by just using a winch. So essentially you just had a whole lot of guys on the deck heaving on a rope to do this. It, no, basically you had a winch system. Oh, it had a winch. winching, had winching systems to do. So one, it wasn't several guys, it was one man could actually bring up a sail. Wow, so that, that, that would dramatically reduce the number of crew that would be needed. Yes, also dramatically reduce the chance of someone being killed because you do not want to fall from up there because <laughs> you'll either hit the deck or you'll fall into the sea and a ship is not going to turn around and come back and find you. Presumably it means if the ship's being well sailed too, it would be far more responsive to changes in the wind. Oh, yes, that's right. things very, very quickly. Exactly, you can do it a lot quicker and that's the thing. I mean, you, you put a, an average crew up you're going to take probably the best part of two to three minutes to climb up to the foretop, get yourself out on those, and then they've got to haul the sail up. So if you are ordered suddenly, you know, we need to bring in a sail, you could be talking in 10, 15, 20 minutes to bring the sail up to it. Whereas this, 30 seconds, the sail's up. It's done what you need it to do. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing there is, I remember, because um, uh, reading about, about the art of sailing, um, 
there, there used to be a rule which was always one hand for you and one hand for the ship mm. because what, what, you know, when you're above the ground basically that's what you need to do to survive yes and a lot of sailing tasks were in fact designed to allow for the fact that they had to be done one-handed. Mm. Whereas um, if, if, if you're down on deck with a winch, A, the winch is keeping you at, at, attached to the ship. Yeah. So you're actually holding on to the ship, but you can use both hands yeah. then to... to well, to you're standing on a deck for a start, yes. which is yeah, a lot yeah. safer yeah. than standing on a fine <laughs> rope. <laughs> and well, It's interesting because I, I was just driving past a truck yesterday and uh, there was a, a safety sign on the truck on the door which said, keep three points of contact at all times. So, you know, you've got the handle on the side because, you know, you, you're standing up mm. a couple of feet to get onto a truck so the idea is you hold the handle you hold the door and you've got one or two feet pulling yourself yeah. up so that that's kind of um the descendant of that rule of one one hand for mm. you and, and one hand for the ship exactly um but uh, so the, the, the painted top sails are a much a much safer system and also right. allowing less you know more efficient and, and yeah less, so less when did they come in was that about this time they had started coming in about 10 years before the sea king was built right and yeah and once people saw this, realised how good it was, and particularly the Merchant Marine, because they were the ones who picked it up faster than anybody else. The Navy's always a little slow, the Royal Navy. Uh-huh. Um, they picked it up very quickly. Probably by the time that the Sea King was built, they estimate there was probably at least 500 vessels or more who had it already mm-hmm. installed on it. I think you mentioned it was showed off at the Great Exhibition. It was indeed, yes. He was, uh, he was both uh, an exhibitor uh, a prize winner and a juror. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that he, he sort of gave himself a prize. I'm sure he didn't. But, look, the guy was a genius. Uh, like a lot of naval officers, he looked after his men and realised that there was a need for something like that, and the, that topsail system became known as the sailor's friend. Although, it's, it's, it, one interesting point is that it was new to the officers of the Shenandoah when, yes. when, when they went on there. So, so the, the um, US Navy, because of course they're all ex-US naval officers, mm. uh, obviously hadn't adopted it. No, but most, yes, but that's the thing. It was it was adopted by the Merchant Marine much yep. faster than yep. it was by, by the either the United States Navy, the British Navy, French Navy, whatever. They eventually did get to use it. Well, they gave up flogging and other things a lot later than the Merchant Marine. <laughs> no, well, that's very true. But you're, you're talking old traditions. But, yeah. I mean, what you were saying about the officers of the Shenandoah, I mean, a lot of those guys actually had had very limited sea experience either. Yes, which is yeah, perhaps not the basis for a, um, a trip around the world. Or, yeah. or some of them had had uh, experience but was on river boats. And, yeah, exactly. And that's right. Yeah, so, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if we if we go back to... Uh, the, the You see, the Sea King is not a... Warship? No, she's not. Was never built, was intended. Never, to be. never intended to be by its original owners. Not like the Alabama. Who I understand. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Mm. But I understand that one of the original owners was the brother of the British Prime Minister. Is yeah, that right? That is quite correct. Yes. Um, so you had basically three people, three groups of people invested in in the building of the Sea King. You had. Um, Robinson and Co., who were shipbrokers, you had Captain Pennell, who ended up being the captain of the ship, and you end up with Gladstone and Company. Gladstone and Company out of Liverpool were an old trading firm, and the current proprietor of that firm at the time that the Sea King was built was um, a guy whose brother was William Ewart Gladstone. So even though this didn't material have anything to do with uh, the Shenandoah and its later exploits, 
The mere fact that the brother of the Prime Minister owned this ship that had been turned into a Confederate pirate didn't really help with the... Uh, no, but I, don't, I don't know how much it would have, would have affected because, I mean, at the time that they, they owned it, they owned it as a seeking. They didn't even know it was going to be the Shenandoah. Yeah. Um, in fact, they had no idea because when it returned from New Zealand, they sailed up into London and were told, um, gentlemen, someone's bought your ship. And they went, okay, fine. And ships were traded like any other commodity. Um, and they said, fine. And they, when they were told how much money they'd been received for the ship, they were very happy with it. And they said, that's fine, we'll go and build another one, which is exactly what they did. They went and go and built another ship called the Earl King. Oh, okay. Oh, so there was a sister ship. Well, she wasn't a sister ship because she wasn't designed by the same architect. She oh, wasn't okay. designed by William Rennie, and she wasn't built in the same shipyard. Okay, well, in that case. <laughs> so not quite sister. A, but, a, a third but, but, cousin but they were, they, were, they were maintaining that theme of the name, yes. right, which right. apparently is all from German mythology. Oh, Oh, there you go. You're, yes. you're raising far too, far too many issues. <laughs> oh, we're, not, we're, not gonna get, we're not getting into so, German mythology. So the Alabama... Because, mm. again, the Alabama just hull-wise looks quite similar to the Shenandoah. Yeah, because you're, you're talking... the hood, there yeah. must have been some... some well, you're talking, you're talking ships that are built at about the same period by similar shipyards along similar lines. Yeah. So, yes, there is going to be a look there. Yes. Um, and the Alabama was built in the UK as yeah, well. Alabama was built in Laird's shipyard and she was built under the number 270 or 290. Um, but she was commissioned by the Confederate States Navy. Yeah. She was built surreptitiously for the Confederacy. So the, the people who were building it knew what they were doing mm -hmm. and they were building it according to what was needed. Whereas the Sea King was never built as a warship. The Sea King was spotted... And after this, this is, of course, happens after the Alabama was sunk with the Kearsarge off Cherbourg. And James Dunwoody Bullock, who was a Confederate agent in, in the UK at the time, he needed to get another ship that would do what the Alabama was doing. He was looking for something. He knew that he could not possibly go to any shipyard and say, build me a warship. They're going to go, no. The British government has said, we can't do that any longer if you do. Because they'd already see, the British had already seen several vessels that were being built. Yep. So he went looking for something that he could say, this is going to be built well enough that I can then easily convert into a commerce raider. He's not, he's not, he doesn't want a warship as such because he doesn't want to take on federal warships. Right. He doesn't want to battle. He doesn't want to end up seeing like the Kearsarge in the Alabama, which so, was, which was a, bit, a bit of a mismatch anyway. Right. So, but, but he wants something that he can say will be fast, yep. that is built strongly enough that I can actually go and mount at least six guns on it and then go out and stop commercial vessels and bomb them or sink them. Right. So, now, so the Alabama, I guess, so, so for it to be able to mount, uh, to be a proper warship, I guess, so the, the steel beams presumably would have been a lot thicker. They, would, they were reinforced things, and they designed it in a way that was very easy for her to be then taken out and actually converted. They didn't actually take her out as a warship. Okay. But okay. again, it was this, this surreptitious, <laughs> we'll go out somewhere where nobody can see us and we'll yeah. do, do a bit of mucking around. But she was, but she was built and they, and Laird's new. So would have that been the fundamental difference between the two? Yeah, whereas the Seeking was never ever, was designed as a commercial vessel to sail London to China and back again. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, did it ever actually do that after the war? Because after the war it was yes. told to the... Okay, so it, it, but it, it, did it, before, it did it before it became the Shenandoah because when she went to Auckland, yep. she then sailed from Auckland across to Sydney. She took on some coal yep. 
She sailed north to China. She picked oh. up a load of tea and sailed back to London with that load of tea. And when she got back, that's when Penel was told, your ship's been sold. Okay, well, I'm very glad it actually did get to China. <laughs> yes, so it did actually get to do it, yes. <laughs> but with a little bit of a, of a, of a slight detour to New Zealand. Yes. Um, I guess, that, is there any... Because is there any memory, I guess, of... of the Sea King's role in the New Zealand uprising, which must be a, a, a very... There's, there's, there's minor mentions of it. Um, shipping lists say that it sailed out of London. There's mentions that it arrived in Auckland on a certain day. Yeah. There's little bits of mention here and there of troops disembarking, but it doesn't rate a big mention as such. Yeah, it's well, just well. another transport vessel as far as anybody... It's not a British warship. If it's been a British warship, then there would have been much more big, bigger fuss about it. Okay. Okay, well, Michael, I, I thought that was a, a fascinating um, uh, interview with Byatt, who we, we probably should have should have also pointed out is the the current treasurer of the uh, Victorian branch of the uh, the Civil War Roundtable, and um, that that was the first half of of the interview that uh, that we're playing this week, and um, we'll be playing the the second half next week because it was a a wonderful interview, and uh, we, we didn't really feel like cutting any of it out. And in fact, we might even have Byatt back again later, because there's just so much more that he can tell us about <laughs> uh, about the wonderful journey of the Shenandoah and the ship. Well, look, I, I thought uh, he, he was very much on our wavelength, I think, because um, I, I have to say that um, we, we often tend to see the, the, the trip of the Shenandoah uh, in dramatic terms, um, and he very much sees the, the, the ship itself as a character, and I, and I think that's a um, that's a, a, a very a very relevant thing to do. Um, oh, I completely agree. It is yeah. the ship is really is a character in this this tale, isn't it? Yes, it, it's exactly like in Liberty Bell, uh, the the World War Two uh, bomber movie. Uh, the Liberty Bell is a character. Uh, it's like in in Fury, the recent tank movie with Brad Pitt. Fury the tank is a is, is a character, and in Thomas uh, the Tank Engine, Thomas is a character. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, Michael. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah you, uh, you, you always have to take things just that little bit too far. I think there's a bit too much aggressive shunting going on in Thomas anyway. <laughs> so. Uh, we probably do need to just finish this episode off, just get back to the narrative as to where we were. Because uh, last week, the Shenandoah had just slipped its moorings uh, and was heading out of uh, Port Phillip Bay. Absolutely. And uh, I believe, Michael, uh, that just after they left Port Phillip Bay, in fact, um, I think the instant after they left Australian territorial waters... Uh, what happened there? Well, in a stunning coincidence, um, all of a sudden a whole lot of men appeared uh, out of various hiding places around the ship. 34 uh, of them, in fact. 34? I, I, I heard 42. Sorry, 42, yes. 34 of them claimed in a variety of accents, no doubt, that they were indeed Americans. Uh, what about the others? The others were of various nationalities, and they shipped them all, regardless of nationality. Um, that meant that they ended up having 72 crew. So basically, that, in, that, that doubled their crew. That did, and... Uh, oh, and one of them, interestingly, one George P. Canning, claimed that he'd been aide-de-camp to General 
Leonidas Polk, who was a Confederate general and uh, also a bishop. He was uh, he was the um, the bishop who then became a general and had been um, Canning had been discharged as an invalid, and I believe. Um, even though they made him a sergeant of the Marine Guard on board the ship, he was pretty much an invalid for the rest of the journey. And I think he even dies later, doesn't he? Well, look, spoilers there. Spoilers. There. I think he might be the only one of the only casualties um, later on. But uh, so of the uh, men they took on board, uh, they've managed to double their numbers. Uh, 44 of them, of which at least 43 seem to be able-bodied and fit, so that's the plus. The minus is, of course, that is in complete and utter flagrant contravention of uh, the uh, Articles of Neutrality. Gee, I, I wonder if an international court will rule on that at a later time. Uh, well, we will have to see. Interestingly, uh, something else happens once the ship uh, leaves Australian territorial waters, and that is Mr Whittle all of a sudden starts writing his journal again. Well, uh, well, actually, I believe he did write his journal the whole way through. He just ripped the pages out from the Melbourne visit, didn't he? Yeah, uh, the, the pages that, that we strongly suspect might have gone into rather too frank detail about um, how 42 stowaways uh, managed to get on board. Yes. So, uh, yes, yes. so uh, if you recall from the last episode... Um, they had to get rid of a couple of stowaways, including memorably Charlie the Cook, mm. because he'd been uh, he'd sort of been rumbled as a as a stowaway. But meanwhile, they kept the other forty four men hidden, including some, I believe, in an empty water tank, and they'd just about expired from uh, suffocation before reaching territorial waters. Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad they didn't die, although. Um, <laughs> Perhaps if they had, we'd like, never have heard about it. But uh, uh, yes, so <laughs> so we we have uh, Mr. Whittle's uh, journal again, and interestingly, uh, the next chapter in uh, Shenandoah: A Memorable Cruise, which is the um, the collection of his his uh, journal, um, the chapter is called "Oh Oh the Terrible Monotony." Well, uh, funnily enough, I think that's why we're going to be uh, having interviews with experts um, on the on, on the road to Potapay. I think but once we get to Potapay, uh, everything gets very oh, exciting. Oh, thing, things do hot up again. So yes. what we're going to do, Rob, is uh, we're going to have the second part of our interview with Bayard, aren't we, in our next episode? Absolutely correct. So um, are we just leaving uh, the, the first week of the, the voyage from Melbourne at Oh the Monotony? Was, 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 that, was that all that happened? Um, there, there were a few interesting things that went on. Probably the, the key thing, apart from the fact that uh, Mr Whittle again enthusiastically starts um, tricing people up again, <laughs> uh, he discovered uh, a couple of very inventing cre- inventive crewmen seem to have been able to... Uh, Put a hole through a uh, uh, one of the bulkheads and somehow tap into a um, tub of rum. I look as soon as he said, um, "Yeah, put a hole in one of the bulkheads." Uh, yes, the the idea that it would be a a, a barrel of rum. 
uh, very much came to my mind. Um, of course, if there were women on board, you might suspect of them of doing a bit of voyeurism, but I believe by this stage all of the women were, were, were off the ship. We have no women on board, but we obviously do have some rum and some, uh, some of the sailors got very drunk, including one, and he was most upset about the fact that he'd been one of the men that had been with them from the very beginning, and he'd got uh, stonkered. But the other uh, interesting part that happens over this next week is the pretty much the breakdown in the relationship between uh, Mr. Whittle and Captain Waddell. And from from what I can see, from at least what Whittle is saying, Waddell seems to have fallen into something of a funk, something, some sort of depression since leaving Melbourne. Uh, what, what, what would that be all about, Rob? Oh, I, I think he, he met a pretty girl in Melbourne town and his heart was forlorn. Well, that's certainly one theory, isn't it? Yes, yes. Or um, I, I believe there's another analogy you can think of. Oh, yeah, yes, he's, he's, he's kind of like um, uh, you know, Strider at the start of Lord of the Rings when he has doubts about whether he um, has the ability to assume the kingship. Yes. Yeah. So if you, if you think of him as a somewhat, a, bit, a slightly better shade Viggo Mortensen, then, uh, <laughs> then perhaps you might. Actually, yeah, for casting in the movie, put a moustache on Vigo and he'd actually be pretty good, wouldn't he? Oh, no, I think he'd be excellent. He's about the uh, the right age, the uh, the right height. And, uh, yeah. and uh, the Danes have uh, a tradition of whaling, so, you know, he could draw on that. Um, Rob, I think we need to wind up here, though, for this yes. week, though, don't we? Uh, look, I, I think we do. We could, we could, we could go on forever. But um, so uh, next week we will be having uh, the second part of the uh, the interview with uh, with with, with Bayard, and um, and after that we're also going to be trying to get some more interviews with experts on the voyage of the Shenandoah. So I think um, it'll be a, a very a very exciting few weeks uh, coming up. Which is pretty interesting, given that the chapter that we're working from at the moment is called Oh, Oh, the Terrible Monotony. Look, so we look. certainly hope our listeners are not thinking that as they're listening to our podcast. <laughs> Never ask a question when you... <laughs> when you don't know the answer. I think I'm going to end at that. So I'm going to say tally-ho. Tally-ho, and uh, this has been a Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirate Save the World, with a Robin Mob. Uh, I'm Rob. And I'm Mob, and tally-ho again. Tally-ho and ahoy.